Ladies and gentlemen and Corner Kick fam, welcome to a finals edition of Corner Kick. Two of the biggest matches in international world football are coming up within the next couple of days. I'm Nathan Strauss, as always, joined by a man who did not miss two penalties in the shootout against Italy. It is Nick Govindan. Yes, I did not. My penalty, my run-up is very much like Jorginho's, except way worse, and I would probably miss it. So props to Jorginho for ending a penalty shootout in probably the most stylish way one could do that. And I'm also we're also joined, as always, by a man who did not score an absolute banger against England in the 30th minute on Wednesday. It is Caleb Rhodes. I like to think that Dom's guard and I have a kind of spiritual affinity, though. But hello. So why don't we start off by talking about the first semifinal. Before we get on to the final, it was Italy versus Spain. Now, you all mocked me when I said Spain can't finish in extra time, seeing as they did finish three times in extra time earlier on in the tournament. But lo and behold... I mean, I didn't mock you. I was just stating what the stats were. (laughs) Fair enough. But lo and behold, Spain got an Alvaro Morata goal, a massive goal from Alvaro Morata, a really nice goal goal as well, um, in the 80th minute after Chiesa opened the scoring for Italy. And then Spain in penalties, did what Spain do worst and missed twice um, as they have so often from the penalty spot. I think we, I think all three of us predicted Italy would go through and we were all correct. I was obviously the most correct um, for the first time ever. But rather than gloat, let's just dissect this game a little bit. Do you think that Italy's hesitancy in front of goal and sort of willingness to cede possession is a challenge or something that we should be looking out for going up against England? So I think one of the questions that we discussed a little bit was like how the the midfield battle would shake up between Italy and Spain, whether it would be 50-50, whether one team would prove to be ascendant. And I think we got a pretty clear answer, which is that Italy were perfectly happy to let Spain control the game. Spain had 71% possession, completed over, or sorry, attempted over 900 passes. They outshot Italy. And frankly, it was largely just their profligacy of everyone from Oyarza Ball, who was surprisingly, I think to us, called in to start over sort of the chosen one, Alvaro Morata, um, who, who really shot themselves in the foot. And I think it's a really bad sign for Italy going into the final that they didn't sort of prove their superiority over a Spain side that I think is good, but still on paper should not have challenged this Italy team. I disagree a little bit. I don't think they were happy to cede possession to Spain. I think you could really tell that in the opening 15 to 20-ish minutes, Italy were extremely uncomfortable without the ball. I think this was the first game in the entirety of the tournament where they didn't have dominance over possession. Even against Belgium, they had more than 55% possession in that game. I, I think this is a team that really needs to have the ball in order to reach their full potential and and get their full momentum going in a game. And without that, in the opening half of this game, they really looked like the second best team on the pitch. And that's why I I think that 
them winning this game is really instructive in a similar way to how we were discussing the Austria game and that this team was able to win when they weren't playing their best, A, but also when they weren't playing the style of football that really suits them. And I think going into a game against England where England does such a good job of defending the space instead of really like going after the man, I think that is going to be incredibly important that Italy have already faced a test in Spain where they're not able to play in a way that is super comfortable for them. I think obviously, you know, the the chances that Spain got, you know, the Arozza ball uh, missed header that he put just wide that he probably should have scored, you know, the, the Danny Olmo various chances that those are chances that someone like Harry Kane will put away. So it's about whether or not, you know, Chiellini and Benucci can really zero in on Kane like they have done to so many other strikers in this tournament. But I was, I don't think impressed is the right word, but I think it was massive for Italy to get through this game and win without uh, the proper conditions being laid in front of them to play their best soccer. Yeah, I think I thought it was a little disappointing in the first half how Italy were just pretty passive. I sort of expected Spain to come out on the front foot and and attack like they did. But again, Spain's biggest weakness over not just this tournament, but really the last four years has been a lack of cri- of clinical finishing. I thought that was fully on display as well. And I actually think that Italy having faced this test, like you said, Caleb, actually, I think both of you mentioned this as well, um, is going to bode well because England aren't exactly a possession heavy team and certainly not in the style that Spain are. You know, it's a very different tactical setup. So I think we could end up seeing actually quite a wide open game uh, this weekend. But shall we, do you have anything else to add on this game or can we move to the other semifinal? I was definitely disappointed in Spain's finishing, but overall, I think you have to say that this Spanish team really, really impressed throughout the tournament. And Caleb, I'm interested to hear what you think because we have a World Cup in 2022. It's not too far away. It's about a year, year and a few months away. With Pedri really coming to the forefront on the world scene, I think this is really sort of, he was one of the standout players in this tournament. The man was unbelievable, and he's a true superstar in the making for both Spain and Barcelona. If Barcelona can somehow get the finances together to try and keep him. Uh, And I I think, you know, we all hope that Ansu Fati, who is probably going to be in this squad, and he's a natural-born finisher. We hope that he comes back and he he's able to work his way back up to full fitness and uh, put goals in the back of the net for both Barcelona and Spain. I think this team, with one more year under Lucho Enrique, one more year to sort of learn each other, give players like Dani Olmo one more year, I think this team was a great shot at competing for the World Cup in Qatar. Yeah, I think in general, the you know forward-looking indicators for the Spain team are pretty good with players like Pedri and Ferran Torres and Daniel Mo, et cetera, et cetera, all being you know another year or so older in the lead-up to the World Cup. I think the question you have to ask is, there are still more veteran members of this team that will also be a year older. Will Busquets still be playing in La Liga, there's been rumors that he might go to MLS, maybe not this year, but perhaps next year, which would be ahead of the World Cup. Will Jordi Alba be the same you know, quality player on the left flank as he continues to lose a little bit of pace year on year? Can someone like Gaia fill his place? We still don't really have a right back. As Pelaqueta is, is another player getting older and Marcos Llorente, 
you know, as good as he is, is better in other positions. So I think this Spain team will be a contender at the next World Cup, but I still think there are several questions that remain to be answered. Biggest of all is I still want there to be a consistent 30-goal-a-year striker leading the line, and I don't know who that is. That has yeah. been the question for Spain, the question eternal for Spain. It's ever since not poor Alvaro Morata. Who, <laughs> oh my word. I felt so the man was really shortest living lived, like the shortest lived redemption arc of all time. <laughs> no, for real. It was truly like he had completed the hero's journey only to then like get stabbed by someone coming around the corner. Like himself, basically. It, uh, it was <laughs> I felt so awful. And this is a guy that I think. Caleb, he can lead the line for Spain. His movement is so good on on the ball and off the ball. And you can see that with the goal that he scored and the interplay with Danny Olmo. Like this guy has, has a very high soccer IQ and he has high technical ability. There's just something with, and I hate to like put this on players because you never know what they're really thinking. And I think it's, it's a bit harsh for us to assume, but it's clearly just a confidence thing with him. And I don't think this tournament goes a long way in trying to remedy that with Murata. In fact, I think this is probably going to be one of the more defining moments of his career. Yeah, I was trying to think of like a Greek myth or something that, that matches up most, you know, where he seems to succeed and then at the last moment fails. The only thing I came up with, and there's probably a better one, is like Orpheus, right, going into the underworld to to save the the soul of his wife. And then he and looks the back. condition is, exactly, the condition is, you know, trust that she's behind you um, leading when you leave the underworld. Uh, but if you look back, she'll be gone. And, you know, right as he's leaving, he looks back and she's gone. It's actually very similar to my yeah. bar mitzvah portion, which, uh, Nick, you were at. Nathan, unfortunately, <laughs> you missed it. I know. Um, I've, I mentioned was, this I mentioned this frequently. Yeah. Um, okay, guys, come on. Okay, Sodom, <laughs> Sodom and Gomorrah, when oh God, Lot, How did Lot leaves this? the city. And turns and, around. And, <laughs> and his wife turns into a pillar of salt. Um, yeah, we're, we're kind of losing the plot. Yeah. Here. The point here is, I, Sorry, I, feel I don't think, I don't think, I don't think we're losing the plot. I think <laughs> you specifically lost the plot a little bit. It's Alvar funny. Every Marata, time. Alvaro Morata is like Orpheus instead, except of playing, instead of playing the liar, he plays miss penalties. But nonetheless, let's move on to England versus Denmark in a game, which I thought was going to be a pretty comfortable victory for England. I think most Englishmen, thought it was going to be a Oh, I disagree. Did you guys not hear Billy Hattel on the podcast being like, <laughs> I am like super anxious for this game and I think it's going to be like the hardest game we've had all tournament long. And even my cousins are saying that too. I don't think anyone in England is really feeling like this is going to be a comfortable victory. Well, I thought England were going to blow Denmark out of the water and then lo and behold. Yes, because you are the nation of England. That you is are true. the queen. That is true. And uh, lo and behold, England went behind early. How heavily did you guys think that Denmark were going to hold on to win after being up 1-0? So I will agree with you in this, Nathan. I did think England were going to win this game. I didn't think it was going to be comfortable. I actually thought it was going to be kind of the, the, the amount of tension that we experienced watching this game. That is sort of what I was expecting. I was not confident that Denmark were going to be able to hold the lead, even though up to that point, Denmark had done a really great job of keeping Harry Kane out of the game, making it so England couldn't play between the lines. But there was just something about the quality of this England team, both the depth that they have on the field and the depth that they have on the bench and the amount of tactical flexibility there as well with both of those things. That was always going to be enough 
and compounded with the fact that Denmark were making the six-hour journey from Baku to London in the lead-up to this game. They had obviously they traveled a whole lot in the round of 16 or from the round of 16 to the semifinal. Denmark looked dog tired at the end of this and they really had had nothing left and you know I think we've praised them a whole lot on this podcast and it's it's a miracle that they're even competing here at like the highest level after everything that has happened. But I just think England in the end had way too much. You know, I'm I'm glad that at least the goal that they were able to score in this game was such an excellent goal from Michael Demsgaard, um, who had as many goals in the Euros this year, too, as he did in his entire season with Sampdoria in Serie A last year. He scored the only direct free kick of the tournament, and I think he and some of the other players like Mila have definitely seen their stock rise. Um, Hoiberg, too. Hoiberg, too. Who, who I was just thinking back to around this time last year when we were doing our Premier League preview podcast, and I spent like way too long criticizing <laughs> Hoiberg's move to Spurs, um, and I think I, I definitely like underrated him, and so I'd like to correct the record here a little bit. But yeah, I think Denmark can keep their head held high, and I think England got the job done. Um, I think the big question I have: How will the midfield of Rice and Phillips match up against the midfield three? of Italy because I thought Rice and Phillips looked pretty bad together um, against this Denmark squad and I think they they might struggle a little bit against the Italian midfield what do you guys make of that I think the question the question has to be whether or not they go back to the 3-4-3 for this game or Mm. the five at the back formation Mm. so I think you're right there's no world even if they bring in Jordan Henderson who is way better on the ball than both Phillips and Rice. And I think that really played out once England got to extra time, having someone like Hendo in there who's so good at uh, playing out of the press and is also so gifted on the ball, can play a really good pass, and is also really defensively oriented. If he's fully fit or if he's close to fully fit, you have to start a player like Henderson in a final like this. I understand this is very biased coming from the Liverpool fan who's advocating for the Liverpool captain to get the start. But I just think he offers such a different dimension and his skill set is sort of perfect for a game against Italy where there's going to be a lot of pressure. Going to three at the back offers a greater hope for England to not really have to worry about controlling the middle of the field in this game. And I don't think that's ever going to be an expectation. I think a midfield of Verratti, Jorginho, and Barella is always going to be superior to, I think, just about anything that England could throw out in this game. I think if they move to the 3-4-3, it gives them a greater ability to defend the space that I was talking about earlier. Uh, but I also think it gives them a great opportunity to overload on both the right and the left-hand sides. And Di Lorenzo, I think, has been really good at right-back in this tournament. He's not an elite right-back by any means. And Emerson... The man is not a great defender, as we've seen play out many times in his tenure at, at, at Chelsea. He's very attacking-oriented, and I don't think he's quite used to taking up that role that Spinozola has sort of left vacant in the following his injury. And I think England can really get, ha- get at him, particularly if they put you know, a Bukayo Saka at right wing back or even, even Kieran Trippier. Playing three at the back will give them such a good opportunity to sort of pin this Italy team in. And then you you leave Harry Kane in a one-on-one or a 1v2 situation or a Kane and Sterling in a 2v2 
with Chiellini and Benucci. I think that really served them well in this game. You just kind of have to create overloads and in individual matchups and hope that England can can secure the victory, kind of like they did against Germany. I think all signs point to this game being leagues better than the last Euro final, which we really suffered through. Uh, and just and I say, why do you I, love bringing up that game so much? Well, I have a point. Well, first of all. Neither of the both these two teams haven't lost a game in a combined 32 matches. I think these are also two of the louder and prouder fan bases. And obviously, with this game taking place at Wembley, I think it's just going to be a truly excellent atmosphere and a pretty nice conclusion to what was a surprisingly good tournament, as as Caleb and I were talking about uh, the other day. So I'm really looking forward to this game. I think much more than I was looking forward to 2016. Um, and I think it's going to be very open just because of all of those different possibilities that you two just mentioned about individual matchups. I think these two teams, I think particularly Italy, after the way their game against Spain went, they're not going to be as passive in this one, Um, and I hope that there isn't the usual sort of finals caginess that we get in the first 15 or 20 minutes. I think there's a difference between being passive and not being able to work through your game plan. And I think England can make it really hard for Italy to work through their game plan in this game, particularly if they play a three at the back. Yes, like there's part of there was part of Italy that that had to surrender the ball against Spain, but their preference is always going to be to dominate on the ball. And I think there is a world where they can have a lot of possession in this game. The question is if they can do anything with that possession against an England team that is so compact, so organized, concedes very little has players like Harry Maguire and John Stones who could contest in free kick situations against an Italy team that has been one of the best uh, set piece takers in the tournament. I I am really intrigued to see how these two match up from sort of a, a, a midfield to defensive perspective. And I think going forward, Jeremy Doku gave the Italy backline a lot of problems against Belgium just by running at them, just by being direct. And Sterling is coming off of what Gary Lineker called one of the best performances of anyone in an England shirt in that game. His running was brilliant. Uh, The way that he kind of suckered Denmark players in was amazing. Obviously, he won the penalty that led to the goal. We can talk about that being uh, sort of a, a moment of controversy. But I think there are several avenues for England to get at Italy here. And the problem with Italy, and I think this is sort of what you're hinting at, is that I'm not sure we've seen their plan B quite yet. I don't know exactly what that is. So I think if they do go a goal down to England, let's say Sterling dribbles through and, and, and wins a penalty and Kane scores and they're up 1-0 in like the 10th minute, what does Italy's plan B look like? Or do they just stick to the same sort of game plan? I think the big question for England is like, who starts on the right? Like, I don't think Saka had a great game. And I think it's unclear who has that last spot nailed down. But Sterling and Kane are definitely in good form. I do think, though, in general, even while England has more depth in their squad and perhaps more flexibility, I think if this game goes to penalties, which I'm not sure it will, Italy win. And so maybe now is the time where we can just give our, our predictions before we move on to the, the Copa America. Um, so how, how are we feeling about this game? I assume, Nick, you think England's going to win. I'm really torn. I mean, I am really torn. I think it is a coin flip. I just think there are more tactical avenues for England to win this game than there are for Italy just to boss it through the midfield and kind of like play it to Chiesa direct so he can score a goal. I think if Immobile was in better form 
that might lean me towards Italy. But Immobile has been crap for the past. He's really let me down in the past <laughs> few games. I do think, don't get me wrong, I think Italy can win this game. I just think England have that little bit more, that little bit of an extra gear and that little bit more variance that is going to serve them well in the final. And gents, I think it's coming home. So I, I'm, I'm definitely supporting the Italians in this game. Let's make that very clear. I'm team, team Italy. It just seems like all of the, the factors weigh in favor of England. The fact that they haven't had to like travel at all this tournament and have played, as Chiellini said in a press conference today or, or yesterday, they've just been playing at home the entire time. And I think that's a non-trivial factor to consider here. So I think England win in regular time. However, my, my heart and soul are with the Tricolore. Yeah, I am not even sure who to root for because I find a lot of the press coverage of England and the sort of English superiority complex to be very hard to deal with. And I know that this is just going to further that. But on the other hand, as we've discussed before, it's not as if Italian soccer is uh, in the clear for their various um, everything that goes on off the pitch in Italy. Uh, and I think. At the end of the day, I'm probably rooting for England because I want to see Bukayo Saka win a trophy. Um, and because... <laughs> well, no, here, here's, here's the thing. And I think, yes, like the, the England supporter base and I think some of the pundits involved with the England national team can be a bit over the top. However, I think Gareth Southgate and this set of English players are people that you want to see succeed. No, like, I, there, there's like, I agree. There's a lot of amazing personalities involved with the England camp, whether it be, you know, Jordan Henderson and Sterling, who've recently received MBEs from the government, Rashford, who we know everything that he's done uh, in supporting people through the pandemic. There's a lot of people involved in this squad who I think kind of have poured so much of their hearts into, you know, supporting their fans and supporting the wider breadth of the nation over the past year or so. That like them lifting the Euros at the end of everything that has happened since March of 2020, it would be like a very feel-good moment. No, I agree. I think particularly in the case of Sterling, who is really frequently just scapegoated by by certain tabloids in the English press, he was really quite good the other day, um, despite winning what was a soft penalty. I think, I think this game goes to extra time, and I think England win it in extra time without going to penalties, just like they did in the semifinal. That is my final pick. So lads, it's two out of three. We are indeed predicting that it's coming home. Well, Caleb, there's something I do want to talk about before we move to the Copa America. And that's like on the flip side. I think there's a lot of players on this Italy team who very clearly want this. And who also kind of very clearly understand that it could be their last chance to win something as part of an Italy team that has been very, very special. And I think no moment signifies this more than Giorgio Chiellini, <laughs> the man who, as Patrice Ever once said, loves this game. Absolutely manhandled <laughs> Jordi Alba in the pre-penalty shootout huddle. I mean, I think, you know, we've obviously talked about the modernization of this Italy team and in the way that they play. But they still have players like Chiellini and Benucci at the back. Uh, Insigne is not the youngest guy. Immobile is obviously past 30 at this point. 
there I think there are players on this Italian national team who can really make themselves into a household names and legends of Italian football, but also players like you know Chiellini and Benucci, who perhaps like the 2006 World Cup was just a little bit before their time, or they were a little unheralded going into that. And this can really be the feather in their caps for to sort of cap off a career for them. Italy are, are in a bit of like a win now position because the root of their team in Benucci and Chiellini you know, might not make it to the World Cup. We'll see. And so I think for that reason, they this final for them is a little more existential than it is for England, even though I think after, you know, decades and decades and decades of failure, it is existential for England as well. But I think Chiellini probably cares about this more than any other person. And I think that that counts for something. But we should probably move on to Copa America. Yes, let's move on to Copa America. It'll be the first of these two finals taking place tomorrow night at 8. And Copa America has gone, I think, a little bit under the radar this year because of the fact that it was moved so close to its actual start date and the fact that it's competing with the Euros. But by and large, this has been a pretty entertaining tournament, as it often is. Um, You know, Common Bowl is notorious for being the toughest World Cup qualifying and, and one of the strongest, if not the strongest continent on average when it comes to teams rankings. And this final is nothing short of one of the biggest rivalries in all of international soccer. It's Brazil versus Argentina, Neymar versus Messi in what by all means very well might be Messi's last chance to win an international trophy. Brazil coming into this game, the favorites, do we think that Messi can finally shake the monkey off his back, and pick up an international trophy. No. This Brazil team is so good. And not only are they so good, they are, and we talk about the quality of England and how deep that team is. Brazil, this is the deepest team in international football, aside from maybe the French national team. There is a, a very good case to be made that the Brazil national team probably beats any team at the Euros on paper. And I think Argentina you know, struggled a bit against Colombia, winning in a penalty shootout, which they seem to be very good at, winning penalty shootouts in semifinals en route to the final. (laughs) Yes, Messi has had an absolutely astounding tournament. He's currently the leader in both goals scored and assists and chances created. He's had an absolute barn burner. Brazil against Argentina in Brazil. We know all of the context surrounding refereeing and decision-making in Brazil. I'm not saying it's a pretty, pretty huge allegedly next to that but uh, we know some of that does happen i just think if you look at these teams on paper nicolas otamendi going up against you know neymar lucas paqueta uh everton richarlison whomever it is like that's just not good enough like him and him and pizzella at the back (laughs) like that's just not you know that that, that's not what i want in a final it's just not what i want papu gomez and lotaro have been good alongside messi in this tournament i think Emmy Martinez has probably been the standout goalkeeper, and that's really impressive when you consider that Ederson and Allison uh, feature on the other side of this game. I just don't. I think this this Argentina team has been playing a little bit above the sum of its parts, and a lot of that is due to Messi. And you can you can stop Messi in one game, and there are plenty of players in this Brazil team who are familiar with how to try to do that, like Casemiro. I don't know. I, th- I just think this Brazil team is way too good to lose a final in their home nation. I think you are 
a little bit overplaying the difference in quality between these teams. Like, I, yes, I disagree, Brazil. Sure. Brazil. Okay. Well, you've already had your chance to argue. <laughs> yeah, I understand. So. I understand. <laughs> okay. So, because you're just doing this thing where you're interrupting me rather than letting no, me go. Go. Please, please. Uh, so, I'm obviously, all Brazil. Okay, Nick. <laughs> obviously, Brazil are favored. But I actually think this is one of the more well-balanced Argentina teams that we've seen. I think for a while, and I'll just kind of go through the team, they've had issues at keeper where they're playing a goalkeeper who simply doesn't play club football. We've just like never heard of. Yeah. yeah. Like, like Orion from uh, Boca Juniors. Yeah, oh Orion God. from Boca Juniors or like even Sergio Romero, who's like just like chilling in Manchester as far as I can tell, unless he's moved somewhere. Like, I don't know. He's he's that irrelevant. Um or even the fact that they ignore a player like Geronimo Rulli, who like weirdly seemed like he was going to be really good and then just kind of like dropped off the face of the earth when Manchester City decided that they like didn't want him immediately after they bought him. <laughs> There's um, like which, a whole investigative podcast to be done. On about like happening. goalkeeping in Argentina. And, yeah. and just him. And then defensively, I think they have solid pieces, right? Um, Tagliafico, we know, is one of my kind of like cult favorite players. I think the center backs are not like to die for, but Christian Romero has been, you know, he was, I think, defender of the year in Serie A this year. Oda Mendy at least has experience. And Pizzello is, you know, a first team quality player in Serie A. And then the midfield finally has some like youth and verve in it. Paredes, Lo Celso, Guido Rodriguez, um, Rodrigo DePaul. All those people are, are quality and probably several of them are better than a player like Lucas Paqueta, like, you know, and then in the attack, Messi has just been on another level compared to every other player in this tournament. And I think in the past, we've seen him kind of like carry a team. Um, and I'm not sure he's fully doing that here. But I think when he took that penalty against Colombia and penalties have not been a strong point for him in his career, and he just ripped it into the top corner, you knew how dialed in he is. And he foils so well with Lautaro. I think you have to take this Argentina team seriously. And I think Messi understands that this is his best chance to finally get that dog off his back that has literally been there since the age of like 13. And for that reason, I really think Argentina are going to squeak this one out, even if it's at the Maracana. Yeah, I am. So a couple of things, Nick, going back to what you were saying about the refereeing, the referee in charge of this game is actually Uruguayan, Esteban Ostioich. And neither team are happy that they appointed a Uruguayan because Uruguay is probably the number two rival for both of those nations. And obviously Uruguay at the Maracanã has its own storied past. But I'm so torn because logically Brazil are the better team. And as much as I, I hear what you're saying, Caleb, Brazil's team is so deep that they've been able to throw on players like Gabigol for like large portions of this tournament and just comfortably uh you know cruise to victory and just as the two teams in the euro 2020 final are unbeaten in a combined 32 games the two teams in this final are unbeaten in a combined 32 games i'm gonna buck the trend here i think argentina wins this game two to one and i think messi scores both goals and by the way messi is now within touching distance of juninho for the all-time um direct free kick goals leaderboard. I think he's only 19 away now following his brilliant free kick a few matches ago. Um, and yeah, I think, I, I think this is, 
I think Messi does it. I think I think he finally gets that trophy. Is it just like on the just just Messi? Like that's why Argentina are going to win this game. Like don't get me wrong. I will. I want to see Messi pick up the the trophy that I think he rightfully deserves and become that person in Argentinian football lore alongside Diego Maradona. I desperately want to see that. I'm a huge Messi fan. I feel like that I, I do underplay that on this podcast a little bit. I just don't. I just. And yes, it's one game. It's one game. Anything can happen in Argentina of the best player of all time on their side. I think we do. We are. We haven't touched on the fact that Neymar has also had a spectacular tournament as the front man for the Brazil national team. And much like Paul Pogba turns it on when he plays for France, Neymar ascends to another level when he puts on that yellow shirt for Brazil. And uh, signified by the fact that he absolutely cleaned out Peru on the way to uh, this final with some breathtaking skill uh, to lay the assist off for Paquette's goal. And I think another important aspect of this game is Tite has been one of the best Brazil managers of potentially all time. And also, I just think for this, this current generation of modern Brazilian players, who really do have their eyes all over the place. You know, these players play in some of the most high-pressure situations in Europe, in South America. I think there's a lot of parallels you can draw from the French national team to the Brazil national team in terms of, you know, a collective spirit. I just think they have it going on right now. I really do. And it's tough for me to see, just on paper, how Argentina can get get by a Brazil team that has, you know, both the tangibles and the intangibles to win a final like this. I think it really is. You ask me why I think they're going to win. I think Argentina's midfield is just better than Brazil's midfield. I think DePaul has been another breakout player, obviously, while at the same time, evidently about to be sold to Atleti. Paredes and Lochelso have both been solid as well, especially Gio Lochelso. And I just think the double pivot of Casemiro and Fred really isn't all that good. And they haven't been tested in the same way that Argentina has. Argentina really had to battle against Colombia. Brazil were able to beat uh, a Chile team that took off Alexis Sanchez at halftime for a championship player in Ben Brereton. They cruised to a 1-0 win against Peru. Even though it was only a 1-0 final, it was not really a threatening or challenging victory. So I do think there are reasons that Argentina could and very well might win this game. I don't think it's going to be as one-sided as perhaps you do. I'm not saying it's going to be one-sided. I just think that on on the whole, in the Maracanã, We've seen crazy things happen in tournaments with Brazil. I don't know. There's just something about the hoodoo. There's something with the vibes. <laughs> There's something about Brazil in Brazil in the Copa America that I just can't separate myself from. And here's what I will say. I want Argentina to win. That is what I feel like I'm kind of burying here. And I think I've just been hurt so many times before that I am sort of just refusing to believe that Argentina are able to pull this out because I desperately want them to win. Like I said, I want to see Messi lift that Copa America. I am very unsure. And Nathan, I completely agree with you. I think the midfield of Argentina is so well balanced. I think DePaul, Paredes have really come into their own this season in in, in Europe and as well for the national team. And I think Lachelso has been a completely different player than we've seen at Tottenham. I'm just so hesitant to, to to pick them to win. I think I think all we can say is I think the vibes have actually like never been better for this Argentina mm-hmm. team than right now. Like that is also scary though. Now. Okay, but I'm saying I think the vibes are better now than they were in the 2014 World Cup because mostly because there's no Higuain in this team. 
Um, but also, and I think this will persuade you more, Nick, and might actually dissuade Nathan, there is a player on the Brazil team, Leo Ortiz, who plays for Red Bull Bragantino. And so I think to be consistent with the long-running trend in our show, where Nick and I are anti-Red Bull and Nathan is like a stooge, we have to go for Argentina. And Nathan, I think you have to support Red Bull Bragantino boy, who just got called up into the squad to replace Felipe, who, who went off injured. And listen, uh, do you think I want to see Fred and Richarlison lift a major international tournament trophy no like yes i'd be happy for fabinho firmino and allison to to win to win a trophy i think i'd be very happy for them in fact however no part of me they don't really start for this team which i think is odd fabinho is far better than fred uh firmino i think has a lot more to offer than richarlison well we will just wait and see is there anything else that you want to discuss before wrapping things up Yes, there is. Nathan, on this podcast about a year ago, in the advent of us eagerly anticipating Tottenham Hotspur's highly, (laughs) highly (laughs) exciting Amazon docuseries, All or Nothing, I think you said on this podcast that you would be very opposed to Arsenal getting the same treatment as Spurs did in that documentary. Well, it has been announced today that the next all-or-nothing soccer series is going to travel a very short distance in North London to the Emirates, and we will be getting (laughs) Arsenal all-or-nothing in 2022. (laughs) From Amazon, they're going to get the Tottenham treatment and the Manchester City treatment, and I guess the Juventus treatment, which that documentary is coming out soon. That's going to be quite interesting. But Nathan, what what is your take on Arsenal being the next subject for all or nothing i mean my opinion hasn't really changed at all i'm not a huge fan of it like i'm still gonna watch it because it's entertainment and so obviously i am feeding into the demand um a little bit for a club that has already had issues especially when it comes to like good press and i don't know i just want a team with no drama and i think that no matter how produced it is there's always going to be behind the scenes stuff that comes out and so i don't know i just don't for a team that's that's not going to be in Europe, the expectations are going to be lower with young personal players. I just don't see what's gained by this, except for presumably, hopefully, some money. But I don't know. I'm still I'm still very much opposed to it. Caleb, what are your thoughts? Oh, I'm just excited. I I, I mean I, I don't really care, and I I didn't I don't even think I finished Tottenham All or Nothing because I I got kind of bored of it. Um, but I, I like seeing dysfunction in these North London teams. And I, I want like a whole episode devoted to like Saliba on Snapchat, right? <laughs> <laughs> like I want to see Mikel Arteta keeping up his snapstick with Saliba and then getting something that he didn't expect. <laughs> so I don't know. I, I think it will be an interesting year though for the show. Like when they don't have Europe. Because I think a lot of the episode's going to be like, boys, if we can win this game, we'll be in sixth place. <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> that's going to be like sad the, the punchline of every episode. No, it is. Yeah. No, it really yeah. is. It's very sad. But yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, I'm, I, I like seeing the interactions. I like, you know, feeling like the players, it humanizes them a lot, you know, which I think is good. 
Um, it's just the sort of behind the scenes dysfunction that inevitably comes out on any kind of reality TV stuff that I could I could go without. No, I mean, well, I eagerly anticipate when the Arsenal board sack Mikel Arteta purely for the entertainment value of a documentary and then appoint Jose Mourinho, inevitably. We will wait for that until the end of the 2021-2022 season. We'll also eagerly await the two finals that are in store this weekend. But for now, I've been Nathan Strauss. Caleb Reds. I have been Nick Vinden. It is coming home. It very well might be coming home. We will see you all with two new champions next time. <laughs>